This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shot, Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. The main topic of discussion today in Westminster is allegations against Suella Braverman, who's under attack from opposition parties about her use of sending confidential documents to other members of the parliament. Katie, talk us through the allegations against Suella. So this all relates to the series of events which led Liz Truss to force Suella Braverman out, whether you call it a sacking or a resignation, and... At the time, that was down to a security breach, of course. The backdrop was around about immigration and this trust's plans to or desire to relax it for high-skilled labour. And it all died down. But then, of course, Rishi Sunak's decision to reappoint Suella Braverman less than a week after she had been forced to go over this has brought back lots of attention. And therefore, over the weekend, you're seeing you know, more questions being raised as to whether Suella Braverman has a habit for being lax when it comes to information, highly sensitive information, and questions about her ability to remain in the great office of state. Now, I think we've had two probably significant developments. So the first relates to the timeline Suella Braveman has been putting forward. So Suella Braveman's argument is effectively, once she realised she had sent this sensitive document to a backbench Tory MP, but also accidentally to a Tory MP she hadn't meant to, someone in his team, she said once she realised she quickly raised the issue of her own accord, um, highlighted the problem. Now the question is, well did she, or was she actually you know, forced into doing so and was more responding to events? And so an email sent from Sarah Braverman's personal account on the day she had to resign uh, is, is viewed as uh, raising questions, because ultimately she sent an email to the MP's office saying delete and ignore it. Now you have a situation where just this morning, Suella Braveman to the Home Affairs Select Committee has submitted evidence which is giving her timeline of events to try and say, I've acted in good faith. I have to say, there's some gems in here. Like she was, oh, she says how busy she was right now. She says she had to leave, she had to get up at four in the morning that day to join some kind of police raid that was taking part at, um, at like five in the morning. And she was back on the car after this witnessing this dawn raid. She, was, she didn't have a ministerial email with her. She just had a personal email, a personal phone. So she figured it was a two-hour journey, so she wanted to work. And so she was having a look at this document. She asked her aide to send it to her. And then she wanted to email it to somebody, but she, because she didn't have a work email with her, being in the car, coming back from the raid, she then used a personal one. And then fat fingers, we've all done it, copied in the wrong person instead. Unbeknown to her, somebody who works for one of her many Tory enemies who wanted to destroy her. And unless there's any doubt about that, Andrew Percy's email, his reply to her, which basically says, game over, darling, effectively. It said, is it Suella? I'm really not sure the government's documents should be shared with members of your former campaign team via Gmail. Can you tell me what the ministerial code says on this and the processes in the Home Office for sharing sensitive governments? Asking my team to delete this email and ignore it is a not an acceptable response. I'm going to do a point of order in this and raise it with a cheap whip. In other words, I'm coming from you and you're a dead woman. And the final dagger at the end. You are nominally in charge of the security of this nation. We have received many warnings, even as lowly backbenchers, about cybersecurity. And then he just signs off with his name. No all best, notably. So I think the question is, 
having received the email, was was Suada Braverman already acting because she shouldn't have sent the document to the MP she meant to send it to, John Hayes? Or was she responding because Andrew Percy clearly had made quite clear that he was planning to catch her out over this? And this timeline is supposed to, I think, or at least the Suada Braverman's attempt to put her version of events out and try and stop the trickle of stories. Is it going to stop their attention? I, I doubt it. She ends quite positively saying she looks forward to getting on with the important business of the Home Office and government and to her session with the committee on the 23rd of November. So clearly that's when she'll be pressed, presuming Suada Braverman stays in post until that day, pressed by a committee of MPs on that timeline. And there'll be lots of questions. Uh, what do you think, Fraser, the reaction Westminster to all of this is? I mean, on the one hand, you think, yeah, MPs consult on policy with their colleagues on a number of occasions. On the other, you know, if you're sending this potentially secure documents out uh, on, and you're sending them to anyone, random parliamentary assistance, there's clearly a problem here, isn't there? Well, there, there, there is a problem in the way that there's no doubt there's a problem in the way that she worked. This was a slip that was flagged pretty quickly. Was it the greatest security breach in the world? Absolutely not. As she was saying, this wasn't classified as top secret or even secret. And she shouldn't have done it. I would question why she would, didn't have access to a work email in the car, like she says. I mean, if she intended to work during that two-hour journey back from the dawn raid, then she should have had the mechanisms to do so. But to me, this isn't really about any of that. This is about Tory wars, pure and simple. There's a big question in the Tory party right now. Yes, this time last week you had Rishi Sunak emerging as Prime Minister, but have the Tories decided to stop fighting each other, or are they still going? We had Jake Berry, a former party chairman, giving an interview to Talk TV last week, saying that, that there was a lot more to the Swala Bravman story, that he was still basically gunning for her. There are a lot of Tories still wanting each other's blood, and they see in Suella Bravman the most vulnerable target. Right now, also, we journalists have been playing cat and mouse with the government for quite some time. It's been, you know, it's, it's you could say, it's an important democratic uh, function of journalism. That's one point of view. Another is that it's just us hacks getting ahead of ourselves and seeing who we can target and just destabilise for fun. Whatever you call it, when governments are unstable, then you will get something like this. You'll get somebody, you know, I remember under the Blair Blair days, it was like Stephen Byers, etc. Somebody who is out there and who people think if you keep going, then you can get rid of him. So this is why I think this is about Rishi Sunak. He reappointed her, knowing all this. Now, can he be in charge of his cabinet in a way that Liz Truss ultimately was not in charge of hers? Can the Tory party learn to stop feuding or does it intend to keep going with this cycle of reprisals? So this is, I see it now as much about Rishi Sunak's authority and his ability to keep the cabinet he chose as it is about who she emailed at like six in the morning from a ministerial car. So I think, and I think a lot of other people as well recognise that this is a proxy war. To, to how secure is this Tory party? To what extent is Rishi Sunak really able to come up with a team and stick with that team in the next few weeks and months? Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you're looking just for the technicals of how this story is going to keep running, effectively, she admits in the evidence she sent to the committee that she sent official documents from my government email to person to a personal email address on six occasions. Now, if you also look at what she is alleged to have said to the chief whip, which was, oh, this is, I think the suggestion she said it's the first time she's done it. So you can see how it drags out. But to Fraser's point, effectively, why did Rishi Sunak appoint Suella Braverman 
to the Home Office. Obviously, they were aware of the fact this happened quite recently, very recently. It is to keep the right of the party on side. He's trying to have a cabinet that unifies, and Sirella Braveman's endorsement was really key to him. So whether or not there is a literal promise of a job, Rishi Scamp has said they have not done that. I think it is clearly implicit that by backing him that part of the party was going to be included. And so Ella Braveman and Cammy Baden, while they're both on the right, they do represent different parts of the Tory party, if you, if you get into the detail. And therefore, can he hold his nerve and keep Sir Braveman in place? You already have Tory MPs warning that were he to oust Sarada Braveman, just as there are some, you know, almost baiting for her. There are others who have said that would be a disastrous move. So this is a question for, does she make it to the select committee hearing? And Fraser raised the question of authority. Uh, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson get, didn't get very far with the small boats crisis that uh, has been plaguing a lot of the Tory right that Katie mentions for the last few years. What ways can Rishi Sunak address this and will he have any better luck in trying to stop the issue of small boats, which we're now up to about, I think, 40,000 now, do any better than his two predecessors in the role? Um, 40,000 with almost 1,000 new ones yesterday alone. And now we're seeing um, reports now of these migrant centres being attacked by people wanting to burn them down. Now, that really struck me because I've been following the Swedish crisis quite a lot. And the moment where Swedish asylum seeker centres were targeted and firebombed was really quite a sinister moment in their debate, if you can call it that. That's when it moved basically into the realm of violence, the realm of, of arson. And I suspect this will not be the last time that we see such a, an attempt on, on a migrant centre. This matters, of course, because one of the fundamental questions of Rishi Sunak's government is, is this guy in control? Are the Tory party collectively capable of running a competent government? Now, this small boats issue matters so much to especially the Brexit voters. To a lot of people, Brexit was about taking control over the borders. Right now, it does not look like control. If we're seeing a 1,000 people enter illegally, helped by the Navy and the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, and this will strike a lot of people as the as disorder. A disorder made all the greater by Boris Johnson's rather ridiculous decision to declare that he would deport them to Rwanda without having any idea how he would overcome the legal obstacles to do so. Perhaps Johnson thought that it would be good to have a fight with legal establishment, but right now it's a fight the government has comprehensively lost. So you can see here something quite significant in the appointment of Robert Jenrick. He is Sunak's closest friend in politics, probably, and he's been given the role of immigration minister, and he's been going down there to visit the centre in a way that no previous Home Secretary has done. So I think the appointment of Jenrick is Sunak's way of saying, I take this very seriously, as almost a note of my competence. The question is what on earth he can do about it, because it's by no means clear to me. And Katie, there's an interesting legal element to this as well, because uh, Dominic Raab's just come back, and he's been someone who's been proposing a British Bill of Rights for some time. Obviously, those plans were shelved when Liz Truss took office, um, and Dominic Raab lost his job. But now he's back. Do you think that there's a chance that that could offer some kind of solution in the medium term? I think the problem is the timescale on these things. So we know Dominic Raab is uh, a keen advocate of the Bill of Rights. We know the work actually was disbanded. Now he's back. I understand he is he is saying we need to get back on this. So that has become a priority again. But in terms of legislation through Parliament, in terms of the timescale for this, this isn't going to be an immediate fix, even if it does get off the ground. And what we also need to know from Rishi Sunak is what are his priorities going to be? Because he's coming in ultimately towards the end of the, the end of the Parliament. There's 
realistically, and I think his team are fairly realistic on this stuff, they're not going to be able to do that much for the next election. So what fights are you going to pick? Now, we know as of last week that education is an area where he thinks that you can do some reform, but you have a very divided party and you don't have that much bandwidth and you have a cost of living crisis. Now, this may be one of the areas, I think, because it is so, in the views of many Tories, politically toxic, the current small boat crossings, that he decides that he does want to do something on. And if you keep Sarah Braveman in post and you have Dominic Raab and justice, then I think that does suggest it could be a priority. But we'll see how this week shakes out. And finally, Fraser, one issue that's been uh, preoccupying a lot of people over the last week is COP27. Obviously, Britain hosted it last year up in Scotland. And now there's pressure on Rishi Sunak to attend this year's summit, which is going to be in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Originally, it was said that Rishi Sunak wasn't going to attend. Uh, there was also a row about whether the king should attend or not. But now it looks like he's signalling he may well attend. Talk us through this issue. Well, fairly soon after becoming Prime Minister, he said he wasn't going to go to the COP summit. I was quite struck by that because it's a big difference from Boris Johnson, who wanted the whole world to show up to the COP26 summit at Glasgow. The slightly worrying thing now is that after a backlash, it now looks like he's going to change his mind. He says he might go to the summit after all. Now, this matters because we need to know what sort of a leader Rishi Sunak is going to be. hes We've seen that Liz Truss was somebody who was blown around by events. She had to lose her chancellor, drop her policies when she faced a strong enough gale. Rishi Sunak needs to work out, is he going to be somebody whose anchor will hold in the storm of politics? Or is he going to be somebody whose anchor drifts? Because there are two sorts of politicians. Now, he's got so many difficult decisions ahead of him on public sector pay, on public sector spending. He's going to, when his um, budget eventually comes out in a couple of weeks' time, that's going to be full of very difficult decisions that he's going to face huge opposition on. Now, if he's seen as the sort of guy who will then bend an opposition, who will be blown by the winds, he's going to get a lot more of those winds than what is already pretty torrid political weather forecast. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots.